Welcome to Cloud and Clear, the podcast by SADA for innovative business leaders and technology enthusiasts, where we explore how Google Cloud is transforming the industry and what that means to you. Now, here's your host, Miles Ward. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Miles Ward. I'm CTO here at SADA Systems. I'm super excited to introduce the, the, the Samuel Jackson of Public Cloud. The baddest conference presenter, demo monstrosity in the world. His name is Kelsey Hightower. He's on the call with me today. Kelsey, say howdy. Woo, we got to make some noise for that. I'm clapping up for that one. This is a, uh, a podcast where we tend to interact most often with customers. But today's podcast is going to feel a little different because I'm not selling Kelsey anything. So in reality, we are peers, partners working together to try and help companies use Google's platform, be able to extract value from it, be able to do great things with this technology stack. Uh, and you have a fairly unusual role in that, <laughs> right? For those yeah. that don't know, me and Miles used to work at Google around the same time. And if I didn't join the current organization that I'm in now, which is developer relations at Google, I probably would have been in Miles's org uh, doing sales engineering. So it, it was that close. Oof. That it, it's, it's literally like him saying just for everybody listening in, I, I, you know, I wanted to give miles the best Christmas present ever, but I decided to get it to somebody else and instead just blow a raspberry in his general direction, which is entirely reasonable. I appreciate that you came to Google and I'm super happy to have you be a part of the broader team. Uh, you made all of us better every day. So I'm, I appreciate your contribution. Um, but that distinction is maybe unclear for a lot of listeners. So you know, solutions architecture is one thing. I've been doing that for a long time. DevRel is a different thing. What What is DevRel? What's an empathy session? Like, give me the load. Yeah, so I'm probably not the authority on developer relations because this is the first time, the first company where I've ever done it or even had that role or department, right? So, um, so just kind of make sure we put that as context. But the goal of developer relations is we have a group of engineers that work on advocating for the developers and consumers, users, customers of Google products, whether that's Chrome, Android, specifically I'm in Google Cloud. And the goal there is we interact with developers in many ways. Some of us do those code samples and help build those libraries that you import and use every day. Some of us jump on those keynote stages or give those workshops where we go hands-on and maybe a little bit more personal interaction. Some of us drop a lot of legendary videos on YouTube so that we can have some scalable content. All of those assets are part of this whole thing we call like developer relations. And there's a feedback loop there. So yeah. I'll talk a little bit about my feedback loop. I like customers, they live in the reality. So mm -hmm. I particularly like flying out to our customers on site and talking to them, listening to them and collaborating with them about, hey, here's the actual problems we have. And then pairing that up with either something that I'm working on here at Google or some product in our product portfolio, or sometimes it's just advice. If I was working here, I would probably do it this way. And it keeps me super grounded. And a lot of times what we'll find is when something isn't a perfect fit, that's that opportunity for that feedback loop. That ties into those what we call empathy sessions. It's one thing for me to write down a customer's pain point. It's another to ask the engineers who work on that product to experience it themselves. Say, hey, all you got to do is deploy this Hello World app on the thing you built, go. When they struggle, 
the end result is what we call empathy. When I read through the notes uh, on one of your empathy sessions, I think one of the earlier ones, it was talking through the Kubernetes deployment process. All of us kind of scooted our seats forward. We're like, oh, 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 they're doing the real thing now. Like they're going to really, really actually show them how it is. I think, I think there was a, you know, a really painful reputation for this disconnect between Google engineering and the experiences of customers and that work to cram those two people into the same context. That's, uh, I think, I think customers have seen value at the far end. I know as a user and an implementer myself, I certainly saw value from it. The products have become more useful over time. And that's, I, it's not a foregone conclusion. Like they certainly could have gotten worse. There are plenty of places where Google decides to turn stuff off or does whatever they want, right? Like it's, it is only by the force of effort and will uh, on your part and folks on that team uh, that are working very hard to, to drag value out to customers. Yeah, and I think a lot, of, a lot of engineers at Google now are starting to understand that the world we live in and at Google is not representative of the entire technology <laughs> landscape. So them saying, okay, that's the reality. It's okay to dabble in that reality, even when it differs from our ideas, our opinions, and our best practices. There's a lot of empathy for understanding other people are in different situations for reasons. Empathy is, you know, I keep doing SQL commands and I can't get empathy to squirt out of the other side of my BigQuery tables. Uh, you know, it, you took the stage at KubeCon. I was super, super impressed and moved by your presentation, but it's not a live demo and it's not a bunch of facts and figures. You know, what, what's, how does it feel as an engineer, as a technician, as a, you know, I, I think a gifted developer uh, to be, you know, not just thought leading now, but kind of feeling leading, right? This is a, a pretty emotional practice that you're building up. You know what? I have to remind myself that I'm human first. A lot of times I, I'll put on the cape of the live demo. I'll put on my mech suit that makes me comfortable, that makes me feel invincible. And when I take the stage, I find a lot of comfort in that. And I can always lean on that and, and sometimes hide a little bit. Even though live demos are supposed to be scary, for me, they're the thing I hide behind. So when you say take the stage and drop all the stuff that you're comfortable with, and then be a little bit more vulnerable. And I, and I tend to mix in some of the human elements into some of the things I do. But this time it was the full meal deal that people got to see. And I decided just to talk about things, especially at this stage of like Kubernetes and that KubeCon community. Some people have been running so hard for so long that they need to understand that it's okay to take a break. It's okay to drop out and allow someone else in. And sometimes you also got to, address some of the stuff that is not really healthy, like this competition of who's the number one contributor to a thing. Right. That's cool. That's a fact, but that's not how we measure what success is. You can't do that because it's not sustainable. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a lot of places where, you know, these communities are, there's so much energy and there's so much excitement and it's so easy for people to kind of let their emotions run away with them or uh, let that, you know, let them get kind of out over their skis or into a place where they're uncomfortable. And there's no better way for, you know, for a young engineer, you know, she's trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work, how to balance priorities. And, you know, does she do the work during the day at the job or is she back home contributing to the upstream? Like, how does she work this stuff out? And, you know, you're, you're, humbleness 
with describing your own struggles and failures and times when demos broke and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, people, uh, the way that I've heard it said best that I like is that, um, you know, vulnerability is the API for a relationship, right? Like you, you can't, can't make a connection with somebody if there isn't a somebody there. That is <laughs> exactly it. That kind of customer empathy, that place where, you know, not only is the stuff that we're trying to do with our customers, help them be successful, important, the experience of our employees, how they contribute their day to day, you know, what it's like working with customers, what it's like connecting with them every day. You know, I think a big part of my role that was unexpected taking on CTO here at SADA has been the degree to which that's uh, just as much an emotional challenge as a technical challenge and helping, helping everybody learn, um, you know, the communication skills and the patience and the openness to feedback to ensure that we're all pushing in the same productive direction. It's tough. I'm glad to hear you say that because you wouldn't be a good leader if that wasn't at the top of the list. You know what I mean? When you forget that part, humans aren't robots. It all falls apart. We, uh, we definitely know that <laughs> I'm looking out the window over here to the right and this buddy of mine's going by with like a super bright pink fuzzy cap on his head. I'm like, yep, we're humans. There it is. <laughs> so, so, okay. Like if, if we're trying to build, you know, an emotionally connected business, um, one of the realities that I think is hard for a lot of customers is, is keeping pace with change, right? Like, one thing to, for them to be open-minded about new things, but wow, there's like a new thing every 36 seconds. How, how has that been for you? Maybe together with your customers or your engagements, like is the rate of change accelerating? How, you know, how has that made you feel over the last block of time? What's been valuable there? So it's funny to me, not much has changed. Like the fundamentals are like the same. When I look at Docker and Kubernetes, and a lot of that, when I look at Docker, I see RPMs. Yep. When I see container registries, I look at Yum repositories. Totally. Even though we have this really fancy automated scheduler, I still understand the fundamentals because I used to do that with the Meet Cloud, me and my colleagues in a spreadsheet, yep. trying to determine what apps should run where. So yep. to me, the fundamentals are the same. I am really happy that there are tools attempting to formalize these form you know, these fundamentals and present us with these tools we can use. Same thing goes for service mesh. 90% of what I'm seeing is like, yo, you could do that with Nginx or, or Apache. Sure. So I look at it and say, you know what? The fundamentals are pretty much the same. Now, the way we go about it, right? Like TLS mutual auth has been a thing that's been around for a very long time, but most people didn't really understand the fundamentals back then. And what we're doing now is baking the fundamentals into the tool where now that's just a configuration option. So I think the way people should look at this is it's not that it's changing so fast. It's that maybe now those things that you didn't have time to pay attention to because it was all over the place, very yeah. low levels, like RFC level fundamentals. Yeah. They're just baked into the tools. And now that they're consumable, they're mm. grabbing your attention because now you know, like, hey, in 10 minutes, you can actually test that fundamental now versus sitting down for three weeks or so learning the details. When I, I heard a customer replay it to me kind of, you know, in, in a, from a risk perspective or from a, a, an opportunity perspective, like he remembered describing to his boss, the amount of work that it was going to take for them to go end to end encrypted by default. And 
he laid out this battle plan of the teams that were going to be involved and here's who we're going to use for our certificate route and here's the whole litany of changes that have to happen at different levels and you know as they laid out this plan the boss is like no no like we're not doing this this is crazy this is too much labor i just can't afford it in this sprint or in this block of time uh and it was his realization that the tools had now gotten so much easier that he was going to get in trouble if he didn't go back to his boss and say, it got easier, it's now 10 minutes. You know, it's the same as being fiduciarily irresponsible and not bringing up something that can save the company millions of dollars, right? Like that is millions of dollars. It, you know, if it's months of engineer effort, uh, that's what that costs. I think you highlight the big part is like paying attention is not about bringing everything in and getting distracted. Paying attention is like saying, oh, there's this new tool. And sometimes when I used to be maybe an enterprise I used to take a new tool and write a little doc and say, this is why we're not using it. Not that I don't know about it. Not that I don't know how it works. I'm just saying we don't need it. Here's why. And that really helps everybody else stay focused and say, yeah, that's a new tool. We don't really quite have that problem. Or we're already solving the problem with the tool that came out yesterday. <laughs> so it's like we, we've already picked something in this space. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, you, you, you know, all those different the marketing departments put them up all the time. The here are all the players in the Kubernetes space, right? Or just like do the top down picture of the booth space at KubeCon, right? It, just the categorization, the list of the different parts of that is a hundred items long. There's a thousand participants in it. So, you know, we get asked a lot by customers like, ah, you know, out of this whole morass, you know, what's the right stuff? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we need to do discovery. I've got to understand what the heck you're already doing. Like, there are... My guess is people attack this problem like they attack eating out at a restaurant. Sure. Go to the place nearest your house. If it tastes good, that's your new favorite spot. Yeah, 100%. There's no other rhyme or reason other than it's near my house. (laughs) It's the first one that tastes good to me. Yeah. So now I go there all the time and you tell the whole world about it. And I think people pick technology the same way that you look at that logo. It's like, man, that's a badass logo. I'm going to download it. And <laughs> if it happens to work <laughs> through some miracle, possibly not your fault. Even like, yo, yo, this is the only one you should use. It's like, well, why did you arrive to that conclusion? Well, in the story you tell, you never mentioned the fact that it had a badass logo. That's why you clicked on it in the first place. You talk about that miracle that it actually worked and that's why you're sticking with it. So maybe like one, one step more narrowly, like if change is happening fairly rapidly, if, you know, people are making choices from the hip, uh, you know, and kind of retro justifying, um, you know, you've been kind of back and forth. Like I think the Kubernetes movement, and that's the right way to describe it is, is moving the industry forward and, and largely in the way that you described by reducing the amount of repetitive tasks and, and steps to get to fundamental best practices. Um, you know, how fast do you think customers are changing to understand that, to actually take advantage of it? I mean, uh, it was yesterday at, in Andy Jassy's keynote at reInvent, he said that uh, you know, for all the news and all the noise and all of the volume that public cloud is, it's 3% of total technology infrastructure, right? Like what percent of, I know Kubernetes is not 5%, not 10% of all of just the cloud part, which is still only 3% of all the stuff, right? Like how, how, how is the movement of the customer conversation changing? Over yeah, there? we are definitely in early adopter phase. 
Meaning if you know what problem you actually have and you know how and willing to invest in Kubernetes to solve it, it's a great time for that wave of folks. Like TCP is hidden underneath the internet. Most people don't even know about it. You call your ISP, you screw a modem in the wall and you get to use it. That's when those adoption numbers blow up. Kubernetes doesn't really have that dial tone moment yet where it just disappears because what you want is for it to disappear. And then people are just using it by default. If you think about containers, for example, customers will say, hey, I, I, I'm not using any containers. And then they puff their chests out. We're not using containers here. And I say, okay, what version of Red Hat are you running? We're on version Red Hat 7. Did you know that containers are there by default? When you launch that process, you're in a default namespace and there's nothing you can do about it because that's just how the kernel works. So in that case, they're a consumer of containerization, even though they don't know it. And they're getting some side effects that they may or may not know. Maybe there's another process that runs like the SSH daemon that sure. has a unit file that leverages some containerization that they didn't have to think about. And I think that's where Kubernetes needs to get into that moment. So yes, right now, early adopter phase. I think people are excited about this API that is decoupling them from the infrastructure. Right now, it still requires a big investment of a team to actually deal with it, right? I'm pretty sure your SADA gets lots of calls. My buddy works at SADA. He tells me, even though I can click that button to get a cluster, that ain't all she wrote once that cluster is up and going. <laughs> That's right. Turns out there, there are more steps in the driving test than turning the car on. I don't think of the internet as a post-TCP IP world. Right, I had this conversation with Vince Cerf, who who works with you at Google. Still, he's the inventor of the internet, uh, and his comment was, "Yeah, you know, we had networks before the internet. They were great, but you couldn't talk together. We decided to make them talk together. We called that the internet. Why haven't you gotten that inner cloud thing working yet?" I have a I have a good story about Vince Cerf. I was given a demo at TGIF, so Google's internal, you know, the big all attention on that we do at Google. And uh, Diane Green at the time, she was like, Kelsey, how about you give a mini demo of cloud? And, and it's like, all right, this is my opportunity to show the broader Google what this GCP thing is all about. And I know I rocked it. You, you know, when you walk off stage that you kind of nailed it. Yep. And I think I did a good job. I, I'll say that. I'm not so sure about all of them, but that no, one I did a good job. None of you got to see it, but I'm going to leak. The the joke that he cracked that is the most miraculous joke of all time is he's looking at a chunk of my, my friend and yours, Stack Overflow, finds himself a chunk of code, highlights it and says, well, you know what I do when I find code in Stack Overflow? Baby, I run it in production. Bow, right? Good that developers copy. And mm -hmm. I went to my editor yeah. and I great developer's pace and just yeah. ran that bad boy. <laughs> so after the TGIF, I got this email like Saturday morning and he was like, and he, and he copied some executives on. He's like, I finally understand what cloud is. Thank you, Kelsey, for that. And I was like, you know what? I saved that email. I don't save a lot of emails. Oh, oh you print that shit out. You put it in a frame. You, oh yeah, that's big. Uh, I did this dumb game, super fun, called Cloud Hero to try and get people to learn cloud faster. And we made capes for it. And I happened to be wearing the cape because that's they were having a Cloud Hero event. And Vince sees this cape. He's like, oh, I like that. So we gave him a cape. So he did the whole interview on stage wearing the Cloud Hero cape, right? I'm just in his like, you know, you know, every time you see him, he's in like an 18 piece suit. He's got like vests for his vests and pinstripes on his, 
it, it, and he looks good, by the way. Oh no, he's sharp. I I, I have no game in comparison to Vince Cerf. But the cape just up leveled it. Oof, he was super strong, super cloud ready. When do you think we're going to get to a place where operations guys like me are going to feel safer storing state in? Kubernetes managed infrastructure instead of VM managed infrastructure. Like I got to run my database in there and I want to trust you with my zeros and ones, but I'm scared and I I can make 11 copies, but I'm still scared. You should be scared of the defaults. Defaults in Kubernetes says, if you don't really know about how stateful sets actually work, because the name is kind of misleading. Stateful sets just give you a little bit of sauce, like, hey, I'll give you a predictable name, instance zero versus some hash. That's about roughly what you're going to get out of Kubernetes. You're not going to get a stable IP. You're not going to get it to pin itself to a single node without a little extra work. So I think when it comes to like stateful services, most of us only have experience by static infrastructure. Bring up some VMs or some bare metal, and you put a fence around it, right? You say, hey. Yeah. No one touched this one. <laughs> yeah, this is my baby. So most people have never exercised the idea of having that thing be unplugged and plugged back in at random times. And in the Kubernetes by default, you're opening yourself up for that by default. So unless you put in a pod disruption budget mm-hmm. until you go and say, you know what, let's turn off some of the scheduling dynamics and just say, I'm running Kafka. Let's just put one pod per node on a separate node pool and make sure that nothing else runs there. So we're not competing for network IO. These are all the things that you don't think about today, but in the Kubernetes world, you're going to have to think about all of those things. Is your database making system calls that container D or run C doesn't allow by default or G visor doesn't allow by default. And these are just the unknowns that hit you at the worst time. And when they hit you for stateless services, whatever you restart the process and you move on. When it hits you for your database, oh my goodness, people start asking questions like, where's the data? And you ain't got no answers. So I think technically, if you know all the things about Kubernetes, you can totally run MySQL and it will look a lot like the way you run MySQL right now. You'll pick some snowflake machines mm-hmm. inside of that cluster. You'll tune the kernel and you'll make sure that only MySQL runs over there. And you're going to have to probably add a little bit of more sauce on there if you want more automation, AKA operators. But the problem is, though, is that Kubernetes is probably a 20, 30% improvement over using something just like Puppet Chef or Ansible. Maybe you have a better description. So it's not going to solve all your problems, though. There are people who think, oh, I got Kubernetes plus MySQL equals Cloud SQL. We, we, We ain't there yet. So I think you can do it technically, but it doesn't absolve you from being a DBA like you were before. You just got better tools now or slightly different tools to install and set up a database. I'm hoping, you know, and I I think we, it'd be interesting to get a conversation together with, you know, people that are a lot smarter than I am about it, but it feels like in the same way as Istio up levels the conversation about the basics, about the RFCs, the simple, simple, the rules that all of us agree you should follow, but none of us are actually following because wow, what a pain in the neck. Those rules exist in storage. Right, like I spent a whole bunch of time teaching a whole bunch of people about what you're supposed to do on EBS volumes, on AWS, on on all the different kinds of storage on on GCP. Um, and if, if you sit us down and talk to us for 30 seconds, like you can get the directive that you ought to have in there. And if we all squint for a little while, we can probably express that as stateful stats and configuration in the Kubernetes infrastructure. But I I think there's probably 
a level up from that that makes as a default the behavior for storage uh, probably configured aligned with the individual state application, whether that's a relational database or a NoSQL database or a file system or whatever the hell. And really, I really like what the Kakarosh DB people are doing in this space, yeah. right? Because I'm a firm believer that in the Kubernetes model, you need help. You need, you need yeah. your application to meet you halfway. And that yeah. means sometimes like in the Kakarosh DB case, it's Kubernetes aware. Yep. It, it knows how to deal with locating its peers. It knows how to recover when something does get evicted. It has replication. It has all of the things that you need in the system like that. Yeah, I wonder if there's, uh, you know, in in the way that I'm describing a way to look, a look at the Kubernetes awareness inside of the deployment code that's a part of Cockroach and yank that part out and start to abstract it for re-implementation against all the rest of the databases that are out there. I know that there are some providers that are working on pieces like that. There are other folks, you know, and I, you're thinking about it and I'm thinking about it too, aligned to the individual state bearing application, if you want to describe it like that. But, you know, I think a lot of the operations people think about it in terms of the kind of class of API, like does this work the same for block or for file or for object or for non-relational or for KV or for graph, right? Like those, I, you know, I think the individual software applications that power those APIs have different enough implementations in hardware, like a big part of the differentiation between them that, you know, the configuration for MongoDB is definitely going to be different than the configuration for Cassandra, even though they tend to compete with each other in a bunch of spaces. So uh, it's, you know, I think there's a bunch of room, one from the, you know, from the providers themselves to go do this work, but it, it also seems to me like a thing, just like everything else, every single one of them has to do it on their own, unique. And, and as a developer who's trying to build your own stateful application, maybe your own new database class, there's no pattern to look at across you don't see that part separated out from their code base maybe it's difficult to see it you know as distinct from the rest of their implementation instructions or from their uh deployment utilities that they're yeah, using like we saw for raft right raft tried to generalize cluster membership and i think the people in the storage sig right so kubernetes has a lot of these sigs and these special interest groups the storage one in particular uh, and I think one of the sick leads at Google is Saheed. They're doing a good job of trying to define, like you said, reusable components. Like what is a snapshot? Yep. What, is it, what does it mean to tell the stateful thing that, hey, someone's about to take a snapshot of your store. You should stop doing what you're doing now. And I think you're right. There are people who are trying to explore how much of this can be generalized. Yeah, I wrote a patent about being able, like there's just no reason. If you make an API handshake that says I'm writing MySQL, and what I do every single time is, uh, a, you know, uh, an insert of a 300 megabyte object, and then the next thing that I do is I get that object based on key. Like what I'm actually doing is interacting with an object store. I happen to be beating up MySQL to do it, but my workload, my actual use case, looks utterly different than a standard MySQL interaction, and. So the cloud providers, and by extension, I think the open source tooling that we're building to impersonate them, there's no reason that it shouldn't just go, oh, you're using this wrong. I will back your MySQL database with GCS because what you're actually doing is GCS queries 
and the operational characteristics will benefit you and generally you'll have a better time and, I, and forget it, I'll even charge you the price associated with the thing you're actually trying to do, right? Like <laughs> there's no reason that it shouldn't be able to abstract between those two. So I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, one of the ways that you get to that light switch uh, dial tone kind of a moment for Kubernetes is when a bunch of this state related stuff becomes becomes trivial, becomes obvious and straightforward. And the easier way to do it is under Kubernetes instead of the other way around. I appreciate you taking a block of time. It's a Thursday afternoon. I'm starving. I'm sure you're starving. It's for everybody. It's, it's relatively late in the afternoon. Kelsey graced us with an evening session, which I appreciate. Uh, thank you for, uh, again, for taking all the time with us. Uh, any last bits you want to say to our audience? No, I think it's just stay pragmatic. You know, like this stuff, there's a lot going on. Uh, a lot of options, lots of tools. Just be pragmatic and, you know, do the right thing. I like it. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Kelsey. Later. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. 